0: Sex testing is basically different forms of testing female athletes in international competition uh, that have actually go back to the early 20th century. There were forms of them then. What it was really was a way of policing female athletes. And there was a level of distrust of female athletes because they were doing things that they simply were not supposed to do. They were developing bodies that they simply were not supposed to be developing. Uh, There's imagery around women athletes that uh, traditional members, male members of the International Olympic Committee and their medical, the men on their medical commission just couldn't get over, basically.
1: Welcome to episode 9 of the Pride House TO Podcast. I'm your host, Ellie gordon Marshall. Pride House Toronto aims to make the 2015 Pan and Parapan Am Games the most LGBTQ inclusive multi-sport event ever. And that's about bringing the games to the LGBTQ community and the LGBTQ community to the games. And part of this means coming together to talk about the tough stuff, the complex and overlapping issues involved in sports and in hosting mega events. And this is where the CAFE series comes in. These are live conversations right in the heart of Pride House TO. At the top of the show, you heard Dr. Ian Ritchie. Dr. Ritchie is an associate professor in the Department of Kinesiology at Brock University. And he was one of the guests at the latest cafe session that you are about to listen to. It was recorded on May 19th at the 519 on Church Street. The talk was entitled Bodies in Sport. And this conversation takes a deeper look at how sex and gender are visible and invisible in sport. The group talks about policies and practices of sex segregation, sex testing, and trans athlete inclusion in sport
2: Great, so uh, to start off as we do, um, with any of our Pride House events or meetings, uh, just by acknowledging that we're on the, um, we're meeting tonight on the traditional territories of the Mississaugas, the New Credit First Nation. Uh, And today we're going to get to talk about the ways that bodies navigate, um, experience, and are represented uh, in multi-sport games and in sport and recreation more generally. So we're gonna have a focus on sex and gender identity within that, but also weave in other identities and bodies as we go, because we know that that's um, really important to any kind of conversation around bodies and sport. I'm gonna introduce myself, and then we're gonna um, move around the sort of circle, my little queer view here, uh, and hear who these lovely folks are, um, so you'll know who's joining us. So I'm Barb Beshrep, I'm one of the members of the staff team of Pride House TO. Uh, I also work here at the 519 as a senior specialist in sport and recreation. Um, I have the pleasure of moderating this particular um, session because of sort of my my background. I have a long history in sport, both recreationally um, and at at an elite level. So I've gotten to play, um, be an administrator, be a coach. Uh, And through that, and through sort of my academic life, I've also had the opportunity to study sports sociology, and with a particular focus on trans identified um, and genderqueer bodies within sport. Um, At the 519, I got to coordinate a drop-in, Active Healthy Living drop-in for trans and genderqueer youth, which was pretty awesome. Um, I worked on a video project with some of those youth that's really an educational toolkit around including trans and genderqueer um, youth and sport and physical activity specifically. Um, and I guess I'm currently um, part of the working group with the Canadian Centre for Ethics and Sport as they work to develop a national um, trans inclusion policy recommendation that should be coming out sometime in the spring um, if everything goes well. So that's a little bit about me. Um, my preferred pronoun is they, my name is Barb, I like sports. <laughs> that's what you need to know.
3: Um, so we'll go this way. Thanks, Barb. Um, Hi, everyone. Uh, Thanks Thanks for having me here. I'm Nicole Neverson. I uh, live, eat, play here in Toronto, um, from Toronto. And I work at Ryerson University in the Department of Sociology. Been there since 2008. And I teach sociology of sport courses and race and ethnicity courses, as well as critical views of pop culture. I have a background in athletics, I played many sports growing up and uh, won uh, half a year of varsity basketball in university, had to stop after because my knees were bad. Um, I think um, what I sort of like about, you know, being invited here today is the opportunity to speak about things that um, I talk about a lot in the classroom and also with colleagues uh, when I encounter them and we uh, have these casual conversations. My work is primarily on uh, the representation of marginal identities in the mass media. So primarily uh, women's sports, marginal types of sports, and even though a lot of my more recent stuff isn't sport related, I still think that the marginality that I'm still interested in looking at um, obviously is important. So for instance, even though I've gone off the sport field a little bit, I've been looking at how marginalized identities are represented in the media with regards to taser use in the city. Um, But I think more importantly, uh, when I think about this conversation that I know we're going to have today, uh, when I talk about sports in the classroom, what's always sort of important to me is to acknowledge subjectivity. So the vessel from which knowledge is shared um, and hopefully dismantled as well and to also invite my students to think critically about not just teaching and learning, but perhaps changing things, uh, questioning things, dismantling things, deconstructing knowledge, ideas. So, uh, thanks for having
0: me here today. Hi everyone and welcome and thanks for coming. My name is Ian Ritchie and uh, sports sociology seems to be a common theme going around here. That's really what I identify as and I was trained as a sociologist And I've been studying sport issues in sociology for many years, uh, 25 years at least. Uh, For the last 20 years or so I've been specifically studying the issue of doping and anti-doping policies in international sport. Uh, But I have interest in a lot of other different areas as well. And my dissertation from way back when, whatever year, was on um, the policy of sex testing or gender verification in international sport and the International Olympic Committee in particular. As far as I know, I was the first to do the first full-length study on the issue. Um, And fortunately, a lot of other much better scholars have done uh, things on on it since then. I've really kind of distanced myself from that topic, but maybe we might have the chance to talk a little bit about what sex testing is for those that don't know and how that's... uh, being very controversial these days. Uh, my motivation for studying sport is sport and physical movement in general. It's the human body. It's, um, it uh, offers up incredible opportunities for people to express themselves. Um, it's also a very, very, very powerful, powerful uh, mode of communication and a very pow- is very powerful ideologically. And the reason that sport, I think, is is because there's always been the impression that sport is above politics and is apolitical and when people are out on the playing field they're just doing sport and blah blah blah. Uh, A myth perpetuated by among other things, uh, among other organizations perhaps most importantly the International Olympic Committee which has been doing this for well over a hundred years now perpetuating that myth. Um, So my role here tonight I think is to talk a little bit about dominant forms of sport and I'll talk maybe a little bit about the Olympic Games uh, some of the strange policies that have come along, such as sex testing, uh, maybe even get into another form of policing of athletes, doping and doping control, perhaps. Um, but hopefully I can give some context tonight for some of the discussions around inclusion.
4: Hi everyone, welcome, uh, my name is Cassandra Lord and, um, I'm here tonight with two hats, I think, one is a community member and the second is an academic. So, um, and I come in my my community life and is my academic life. So, um, in terms of the community work that I do, it's related to uh, the Black Queer Youth Initiative. That was a uh, program that's a program of supporting our youth. So I started that back in, I think it was 2002. Um, and I've been doing a lot of LGBT, um, I, I, volunteer with uh, the youth line and Sherborne health on their board but also more uh, specifically around yoga so I, I'm a part of the brown girls co- uh, collective which is um, to thinking about more of yoga has in the past 15 years has become a form of sport in a sense because it's in mainstream gyms so I'm, so I'm really thinking more about accessibility and really thinking of how bodies are represented or not represented in them in mainstream um, yoga spaces so as Brown girls yoga we we look at primary Priority, we go into priority neighborhoods and offer yoga services to, um, to different communities that are outside of the downtown core. Um, and in my professional life, so I'm going to start as a professor at, at uh, University of Toronto Mississauga in the Department of Historical Studies, and my work is really kind of thinking about um, gender, non-gender conforming bodies in terms of how they refashion themselves and in relations to the, sh- the street and in relation to Toronto. And my work has been, that um, like I just finished, has been looking at the Toronto Pride parade and how communities of color are not represented or represented within pride's history so really documenting pride's history from um, from the 60s in terms of how it's come to be um, in the present day so I I think my um, personally I'm a runner, (laughs) so more I do run, I I run um, and I also played hockey for two, field hockey for two years and now I'm a yoga instructor after practicing yoga since 1998. So I hope I can lend a different perspective, a feminist and critical race perspective to the conversations that we have today about bodies and sport.
2: Thank you. Thank you to the three of you for introducing yourselves. Um, We were thinking about starting this a bit broader. So getting a bit of the sport history context, why sport you know, is the way that it is now, and then um, having an opportunity to bring that down into how that, those histories and the um, sort of international um, governing bodies actually affect everybody who participates in sport and physical activity at all levels. Um, so I'm gonna pass it on to Ian, who will repeat word for word the beautiful history of sport um, that we sort of chatted about on Friday.
0: I didn't know this was a test, in the, a memorization <laughs> test, so it might be tough. I maybe want to start by, well, first of all, I'm going to talk about dominant form of sport in particular. Um, you know, I know a little bit more about the Olympic Games, uh, but the Olympic Games is the most important uh, Sports, the International Olympic Committee is the most important uh, organization in the world in terms of affecting policy all the way down to the everyday level. So I concentrate on them, but we should always be careful not to, of course, confuse dominant forms of sport, dominant organizations and so forth with everyday sport and the stuff that people are doing on an everyday level. In fact, um, it has been uh, more or less proven that uh, big games like the Olympic Games, Pan Am Games and so forth, have very little effect on people's participation levels. And that's uh, something that a lot of people are not aware of, perhaps. Uh, In any case, um, organizations like the International Olympic Committee do uh, affect things um, uh, down to the everyday level in terms of policies, uh, school sports, university sport, um, sports organizations, and so on and so forth. So I'll talk mainly about them. Maybe uh, start with uh, something I forgot to mention, which everyone else did, which is what my own sport history was is and was and I've done a number of things including a lot of running. Uh, But my main sport when I was a young adult was rowing. Uh, I rowed at Western University um, and some other clubs as well. Uh, At the period of time women were just coming into the fore in the sport of rowing when I was competing but there were still a lot of tensions and a lot of discrimination in terms of of women coming into what had been a male dominated event. But I remember uh, at the time um, th- my mind thought, uh, my, my thinking, sorry, uh, about sport and what it should be. And number one, uh, through most of my youth and through most people's use in my era, uh, sport was men's sport, number one. And number two, very interestingly enough, I remember thinking that if you were somebody who went out and made some money from sport, and this is getting back to maybe when I was a little younger, if you're somebody that made money from sport, you were a cheater. In the same way that people now think that people that dope are cheaters. uh, The the thinking was that strong around uh, money in sport and amateur sport. That comes from traditions of amateurism. Amateurism has had a powerful influence on sport around the world and uh, in Canada as well. Where did that come from? Um, And by the way, amateur rules were in the International Olympic Committee's uh, charter until as late as the 1970s. They didn't go away that long ago. Where did amateurism come from? It came from a lot of places. But if you had to identify one particular um, social and historical context that was important for the development of modern sport and amateur traditions, it would be England in the 19th century. And English sport traditions had a humongous impact on, on sport around the world. They directly impacted uh, the Olympic Games. They directly impacted the formation of Canadian sport in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And the amateur tr- traditions emerged out of elite boys schools, public schools in England, and some of the values that were uh, attempted to be perpetuated through uh, those elite schools. Um, historically referred to as muscular Christianity. Some historians have referred to it as a cult of manliness, which it really was. The idea which was in the elite schools such as rugby school and Eton College and Cambridge and Oxford and so on and so forth in England, you perpetuate positive values for young men who are gonna be the leaders of England, politically, economically, and so on and so forth, who are going to build empire. And you do it through sport. Uh, In part, you uh, instill values such as confidence and discipline and sense of fair play and camaraderie with your fellows and and all of this sort of thing. These traditions were admired by, by, were very influential and were were also admired by the founder of the modern Olympic Games, Pierre de Coubertin. Coubertin was actually influenced by a number of different traditions uh, and a number of different um, histories of sport, uh, ancient Greek sport, or at least what he thought ancient Greek sport was. He was also influenced by notions of chivalry from medieval times, and he was influenced by, um, uh, by English school sport in, in England. Uh, and also the, the similar kinds of things that were going on in other schools around the world. He visited the United States, uh, elite schools there. He went to Canada, visited McGill, Uh, which was the first uh, physical education program, as far as I'm aware, in Canada and they're doing kind of similar things there and Montreal was in fact very important for the evolution of sport in Canada. Um, So right away we have in what became the most dominant organization in the world, the International Olympic Committee and Olympic sport, we have the influence of the cult of manliness, of male sport being organized in particular ways for males. And so this tradition became, um, was perpetuated through really most of the 20th century, and I think that's a very important context to keep in mind. And and by the way, just as a footnote, if Kubertan had had his way, there would be no women in the Olympic Games to this day. He abhorred the idea of women being in the Games, uh, unless they were there as fans for the men. of course, there were challenges along the way, as there always is, to power. Uh, I want to maybe give uh, a couple of examples of this and a couple of things that can maybe um, put into context, things that happened in the 20th century. Uh, fairly early on, there was a very vibrant women's sport movement in, um, uh, concentrated mainly in Europe, although uh, 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 athletes and uh, administrators and coaches from other countries were also involved. Um, a, a French woman named Alice Milliat organized the women's uh, Olympic games and it took pl- they took place in the 1920s and 30s. They were a direct challenge to the authority of the International Olympic Committee. It was an attempt to do women's sport for women. Uh, Milliat was quite successful. The games were held every four years like the IOC's games. Uh, they were gaining momentum, but interestingly enough, M- Milliat did something that was perhaps a mistake which is she recognized that the International Olympic Committee ultimately was the guiding body in sport. She wanted to make connections with IOC members in order to develop women's sport through the traditional, if you will, Olympic Games. And so she struck bargains with them. So she wanted more women's events uh, in track and field in particular, which was the most, they were the most contentious events at the period of time in which the women's games were held in the 1920s and 30s. And she struck a bargain to have 10 women's events included in the 1928 Amsterdam Games. She also struck a bargain that with the International Olympic Committee uh, to have IOC members that were women added to, to their ranks. Um, the reason that she did this in the first place was the International Olympic Committee was essentially pissed off at her that she was using the word Olympics. They wanted ownership and they wanted monopoly on that term, which they still do to this day. They always challenge whenever the term Olympics is used. Um, And so the bargain was struck and she changed the name to the Women's World Games instead of Olympic Games. The International Olympic Committee went back completely on their promises. They added only five events instead of ten and they added no female IOC members and it's pretty clear that they never had any intention to do that. But what we see in the Milliat example of the Women's Olympic or World Games is a challenge to the International Olympic Committee and these challenges Uh, such as these um, have existed throughout the 20th century, and women's sport of course has grown uh, incredibly, and especially in the last few decades of the 20th uh, 20th century. But another, I think, interesting way of looking at how it is that the Olympic Games maintains power, is um, uh, a kind of gender power, and how it polices athletes, um, is, is through the policies of sex testing, which I'll maybe talk about later, so I'll touch on it for just a minute or two. Uh, Sex testing is basically different forms of testing female athletes in international competition, uh, Olympic games and other major international competitions uh, that have actually go back to the early 20th century. There were forms of them then. And there were suspicions, if you will, of athletes that go back to that period of time. But the International Olympic Committee and other major organizations, since, since, such as the International Amateur Athletic Federation, which oversaw track and field, instituted regular organized sex testing, chromosome testing in the late, mid to late 1960s, which lasted all the way until the end of the 20th century. And it was based on the idea, theoretically, that men, there were some cases of men sneaking into women's events and it was ultimately unfair. It turns out that that was not the case at all. What it was really was a way of, of policing female athletes. And there was a level of distrust of female athletes because they were doing things that they simply were not supposed to do. They were developing bodies that they simply were not supposed to be developing. Uh, There's imagery around women athletes that uh, traditional uh, people like members, male members of the International Olympic Committee and their medical, the men on their medical commission just couldn't get over basically. Um, Interestingly enough, we still have sex testing to this day. It's just changed forms, That form, that's all. Um, So I think it's a a real clear statement about uh, the fact that the assumptions built into sport and into the major sports organizations in the world are based on male assumptions and assumptions regarding masculinity and relatedly sexuality as well. Um, Last thing I'll say is Perhaps, I mean, maybe we'll talk about this, but in terms of inclusion, uh, media inclusion is one of the ways in which we see athletes. Um, I think it's been, uh, I think Cassandra or Nicole on our telephone call said that that it's pretty clear that uh, coverage of women's sport has gone down dramatically in recent times, surprisingly enough. Since approximately the 1990s, there's actually been less and less um, coverage of women's sport. Um, There's kind of a historical context that helps to explain that and it moves away from amateur sport a little bit and goes into the, the, the dominance of professional sport because our newspapers and televisions and other forms of media really concentrate on the men's professional leagues in North America and that's been statistically shown and all you have to do is pick up a newspaper to see that. There's a reason for that. The major sports organizations, professional sports organizations in North America, and the National Hockey League in Canada as well, in particular, um, developed their dominance in professional sport by the mid-20th century. When they did, there was this happy marriage of television in particular, and the men's leagues, in which they both started making a ton of money from each other. There's a kind of revolution of sorts in women's sport for a number of reasons that started in the 1970s. But the problem was always that it was always too tough to go against that marriage that had happened from beforehand. And the the major leagues in particular did something that goes back to the early 20th century that um, sort of secured their dominance, which is they got economic exemption from monopoly laws. And those monopoly laws, the National Hockey League, Major League Baseball, the National Basketball Association, and the National Football League, are essentially illegal organizations because they're run as monopolies or more technically correct cartels, but they've been given exemption. Because of that, they've been able to control sport, control professional sport, make a lot of money, create the happy marriage between themselves and television, and as a result, women's sport has always been an, a. a uphill battle uh, getting, um, getting equal coverage um, despite the best attempts from a number of sectors uh, supporting women's sport. So that's kind of the general context, the context of so-called amateur sport or what used to be called amateur sport and the traditions of masculinity and professional sport as well, which really um, I think dominates uh, the world of sport today and it's still something that we are overcoming very slowly but um, it's a, it continues to be an uphill battle, but hopefully events like this and group organizations like this are w- among many who are helping to, to, to fight that battle.
2: Well, we think so. Yeah. Thank you for providing some of that context. Hopefully that was helpful for some of you folks There's We do think about sport now as, you know, just sort of the way that we see it now, and often a lot of that history isn't shared. Um, It's, you know, unless you happen to be a sports sociologist um, or really, really personally interested, you won't hear those stories on TSN or Sportsnet. Um, So that is a a really important piece of how we've come to where we are today and how, you know, bodies are viewed and categorized and and represented and how they experience sport. Um, I don't know if you want to build on that because it's a great segue with the media piece.
3: Yeah, thanks. I, When you were talking about uh, media things, Ian, I was thinking about how hockey began as a sport that was broadcast in Canada. Hockey was more or less a tool, an ideological tool, to bring together Canadians during wartime. So CBC radio needed content, uh, CBC TV comes along uh, afterwards. And CBC as a public broadcaster has a mandate to more or less show Canadians who they are, to more or less build morale up, not just for the war, but also some sort of cultural or collective cultural identity. And NHL hockey became one of those tools that was used. And I think in Canada at least, and we can all, whether we're hockey fans or not, I know sometimes I roll my eyes at how much hockey seems to be uh, represented talked about, celebrated, I should say, certain types of hockey. Um, And I think a lot of that does go back to the historical representation and use of men's ice hockey in this ideological way to talk about Canada and Canadiana and to promote our identity within the country and also internationally as well. I think one of the consequences or implications of that has been to exclude other types of sports. You know, you don't have to go far in different neighborhoods in even Toronto and other places around the country and hockey is not the number one sport that kids are interested in. It could be basketball, it could be soccer, it could be cricket. Um, But we don't tend to see those stories told in a larger mass media kind of scale. And to sort of piggyback now on what Ian was talking about with this male-centered focus, It seems like a lot of the sports stories that we do have access to in the mainstream sports media tend to celebrate male athletes' stories, male athletes' statistical sort of forays and achievements, and also the expectations of sports are also, how should we say, male-dominated in the way that the standards for recognizing or even celebrating records are male standards. I can remember a few years ago, there was a women's NCAA team that actually broke the long-lasting men's uh, win streak, and they were told that they did not break the streak, that they were a women's team, and because they played women's ball, it didn't count, and it was something that was very different. So I think when we look critically at what's available in mass media right now, and I'm not one to sort of think that the media more or less tells us what to think and what to do and things like that, but the media, mass media, even marginal, marginal media like blogs and things that we all might engage with online, they do play a role in this larger, you know, what we can call sports media complex where they're you know, professional sports teams, they're advertisers, marketers, team owners, athletes, television companies, all of the people who have their hands dirty in what Ian described as a cartel when we look at that complex or that relationship of folks that are feeding into the way that sports are represented, they're working with a very narrow view of what sports are and how they can be defined. And one of the things that I remember in my past research, um, I don't know if any of you remember, but Canada actually only got digital television channels back in 2003. 2002, 2003. And when we got those digital channels, one of the main sort of, how should we say, rules about any new digital channel was that it had to offer something that wasn't already available on Canadian networks. One of the television stations that I ended up studying back in 2006, 2007 uh, was WTSN. And WTSN was the women's television sports channel and they were owned by TSN, and there were all of these amazing goals and lofty missions to sort of deconstruct what Canadians could see on TV with regards to sport. What happened, and this goes into the, how do we define what is sport? Who gets to define it? And what does it mean to say that sport is successful? What happened to WTSN, in case you don't know, well it's not on TV anymore, It was alive and or it came into being in 2001 and it died in 2003. And the reasons given for WTSN's demise was that A, there were no advertisers and B, there was no audience. And women were blamed for WTSN's demise. As if women's sport isn't something that should be brought, hyped, constructed, covered for everyone. in an an inclusive sort of way. So in getting back to talking about even things like the Olympics and how we come to sort of see the Olympics and the representations of the Olympics, Mm -hmm. we have to think about sport as actually being controlled by a lot of financial sort of powers. And one of the long lasting impressions that I remember I had in interviewing people who worked for WTSN, and a lot of the same anchors that we might see on mainstream uh, sports networks now that we may look at from time to time is that they told me that if it can't make money then it's not a sport. So what's (coughs) defining what we see in the mainstream is not actually sports that people play and the stuff that's actually going on in the street. No, what's going on is can I get so and so to pay for the eyeballs to put that on TV because otherwise it's not worth my time. And of course, all of these corporate powers, and this is another issue with the corporatization of sports and the Olympics, is that if they're not making money, they don't want to broadcast it, they don't want to put the money in telling the stories before the events even happen, and they don't even want to tell us on a daily basis maybe what these athletes might be doing. And that goes for women's sports, amateur sports, Paralympic sports, and other types of marginal sports identities and practices. So I think the huge sort of implication for that is a couple of things. We live under a time where it's a very sort of rigid or very limited in terms of mainstream coverage of sports that we might want to see. So we don't get to sort of see the more marginal types of sports. The second thing is and something that we should be alerted to is organizations like the CBC are not going to be broadcasting events like the Olympics forever. Their government subsidies and funding is being cut by certain governments that we all sort of know about that are very different ideologically when it comes to understanding what a public broadcaster's value (coughs) is. So that's the first thing. Um, The second thing is, it kind of is related to that. If we no longer sort of have a public broadcaster, and don't get me wrong, I know that the CBC is also corporate in many ways, they use their broadcasting of hockey to gain more money to actually show us more of these amateur sports. But if we entrust sort of these public tales or the mission of bringing us more marginalized sporting practices and identities and stories to the private companies or the private broadcasters, what type of sports culture can we entrust them with showing us or helping us to see a little bit more of? And I think what history tells us is that corporations, especially the private corporate powers are interested in fattening up their bottom line and they might not see the benefit, the value, the cultural worth of representing these more marginalized types of practices. So I think maybe the last thing that I would say about that, and I know we'll be talking about more inclusive uh, types of issues as well. Um, I think where we see uh, sports going, or at least where I see sports representation going, is that the true sports fan who is interested in anything that's not on the grid is gonna have to work extremely hard to be a fan of that particular sport, or to be a fan that follows that particular athlete. So you're gonna have to work really, really hard, harder than you're working now. And the second thing is that I think quite possibly, even though the internet is not accessible for all, and also comes with the same types of problems that traditional modes of communication have. There is a way for the internet, in many ways, to sort of start dismantling, to start questioning and questioning in new ways what this mainstream sort of you know hege- hegemonic force is um, with regards to mainstream representation of the big four, the big three male-identified sports.
2: Great. I think that. There's a lot to to what you and Ian have shared and I think it really, um, really reflects, you know, Cassandra, you can speak more on this maybe in your sort of experience of yoga from 1998 until um, today. I think that those things that have been happening Um, with sport generally and in the media and the corporatization we see in some community sport. And I think that yoga might be a really good example of that if you want to speak a bit to what some of the changes you've seen um, that that might reflect some of this
4: um, bigger picture well, I think the, uh, the commodification of yoga in the past fifteen years, and we can see it, as I said before, in terms of moving from moving from um, the spiritual practice into um, into gyms, right, where the focus is on performance, right, of the body, right. So the ways in which um, when it's moved into into gyms, yoga then becomes how do we how do we use it as a form of fitness, right? That no longer that's no longer um, it's take it's devoid from. From its from its spiritual and uh, connectivity, to really thinking about well, how do we make ourselves fitter, right? How do we make ourselves more more physically fit? And I think uh, I, I guess from my perspective is that also um, is within like particular gyms in downtown where um, where there is a particular aesthetic about how we look, right? So and 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 moving away from that, I think what um, with the group that I'm. Um, a part of is trying to do is really kind of really saying that um, how do we get back to some of the basics in terms of thinking about accessibility and thinking about certain bodies, who's supposed to be and who's not supposed to be, what does it mean to be fit, right, so even kind of taking up what Ian spoke about earlier around um, the idea that sports is about performance, right, so in terms of this kind of, you know, cisgender male, um, you know, way of of being, of Going t- towards a goal, right? So t- to achieve certain things, whereas that has to be deconstructed. I think also in terms of um, in terms of how how that kind of patriarchal kind of understanding comes to be, right? It's really constructed, um, and I just want to segue a little bit to really think about because today I was reading a lot about for the past couple weeks around Fallon Fox, right? So Fallon Fox is a transgender mixed martial artist who I think who's really come up now, and so so thinking about um, sport as kind of shifting over time in terms of what is Sports, so mixed mixed martial arts, and I don't know if it's in the Olympics in, in Toronto or not, right? So Fallon has, um, um, ha, so Fallon uh, has been, um, so Fallon Fox self-identifies as a transgender mixed martial artist who basically um, had to come out as because it wasn't it was unknown. And what um, so uh, the. Uh, the cisgender females who are uh, don't want to fight Fallon because they said that Fallon um, went through puberty as you know uh, assigned as as a boy and therefore um, now because um, as Fallon um, has um, self-identified as transitioned in, um, that um, as. Um, so transition to um, um, as a female, right, so that somehow Fallon's b- b- bone structures are still, um, are, are gives Fallon an un, um, unfair advantage in terms of fighting women. So there's this kind of back and forth in the media, and it's really interesting also around how much um, so Fallon uh, does, um, is mixed race, so is not. I don't know what, <laughs> but identifies as mixed race. So also the ways in which that construction of, of um, Fan Fox as this kind of hypersexualized, um, really aggressive um, wo- um, woman, right, <laughs> um, that can actually, um, that is threatening to other white cisgender women, right. So as a as a as a, um, uh, as a fighter, right. So this is what's been going on around this idea about like. Using bone structure and 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 definitions of hands, kind of going back to that scientific ways of kind of really trying to eliminate certain bodies right for that using ways to kind of sift out who should belong and who shouldn't belong, so I think that's a really good example of really turning, I think, sports on its head, and really trying to, and questioning about who, what, what is performance, like what does performance look like? So it's okay for a cisgender male to be kind of striving in this kind of dominant sports to, to be strong and athletic, and to, and you know, but in terms of, um, you know, uh, transgender women or, you know, other women of color, right? So we can take it back to um, also to thinking about um, Venus and Serena Williams, so the ways in which, and I'm, I'm sure you've seen it in. Media discourse around the ways in which she's um, uh, Serena has been portrayed, right? So the hypersexualized, kind of masculinized. So in one hand, we want we want our athletes to be really strong and and to achieve and and to perform, and at the same time, um, other athletes are vilified for for the way in which they which they look. So I think. So in kind of thinking about all of these things, I'm really interested in the ways in which gender and sexuality and race really plays into these kinds of discourses around who has access right, and who doesn't have access. So I think yoga becomes a way to kind of think about how um, uh, uh, recreational forms of sport, (laughs) such as yoga, Then provides us a way to kind of think about um, visibility, right? In terms of who, like who is physically fit, and what does that actually mean to 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 be to be you know um, to to be doing yoga, Um, and also. questions that are raised around class and accessibility, right? So if we think about are there forms of organized sport like basketball, you, you know, like the, the, the narrative for young, you know, young cisgender boys in Toronto, who, you know, who are black is basically the it's a trajectory of like you, you know, you play, um, you know, you go from like middle school to high school and then a scout sees you and then you, you, you become, you get a scholarship. You know and then you go into so the ways in which that in itself right is perpetuating a particular stereotype about who plays and who doesn't and who has access and who doesn't right um, and then and then and then also with this notion of accessibility i want to think also the ways in which we may we may want to kind of um, uh, think not only in terms of how those bodies in themselves are commodified. So those kids who are who who are um, coming from lower-income neighborhoods who then become commodified and seen as then symbols of Canada, right? And we can segue all the way to Ben Johnson (laughs) and kind of go all the way to nationalism and talk about the ways in which certain bodies become symbols for Canada, right? So when they are seen as um, Canadian citizens, right, who are... um, um, who become Canadian, and then when they fall out in terms of dope testing, or um, are no longer so. I think the ways of the falling out about this idea about multiculturalism and sport is really, really, I think, integral to really think kind of segueing to to your discussion around um, about uh, hockey, right? As like, I mean, and that I am Canadian commercial that. For, for, um, for beer right became like I use it in class all the time because I think it's a really prime example of how hockey be- becomes tied to nationalism be- becomes tied to white manhood right and then in terms of it really kind of paints like a group of seven Canadas this pristine kind of space right and, and then basketball or other forms of or cricket which you which we we said basically other communities are playing are not a part of that. Discussion. So I think in kind of probing these kinds of um, these these different pockets, we need, to, we need to challenge those particular narratives. We need to challenge about who is seen and who is not seen and why, right? And, um, and in terms of ideas around um, ability, right? So the so the ways in which I think that um, bodies don't need to fit in, like. Structures of such the IOC, I think bodies don't need to fit into that. That needs to fit into those bodies that are not there. And why is that siphoning continuing in the present?
2: Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> each of you have brought in a lot, um, you know, from race, um, everything. I don't even want to list it. There have been so many different. Um, themes and ideas that have been brought in. uh, I wonder if there's sort of one area where we wanna focus on thinking about you know for the next five or 10 minutes before we take a break, um, where we're looking at sort of the inclusion and exclusion of bodies in contemporary sport, um, or if somebody in the audience sort of picked up on something that they'd really like to hear a bit more on with that theme, Um, because there was so much there we're not gonna be able to to chat about all of it obviously unless you want to stay here until next week um is there anyone anything that sort of that cassandra brought up or that anyone wants to pick up on and run with for a few minutes
0: can i run with one which sure. is going back to the point about the cbc representation of the national hockey league when the cbc was first created mm-hmm. um uh, a royal commission determined that it, uh, that it be a, a, a public entity and that not uh, the, uh, the radio at the time, of course, not television, not fall into the hands of any powerful organizations, uh, companies, politicians, and whatnot out of basically a sense of fairness, if you will, and the idea that CBC would represent the people of Canada. Um, they made one exception, however, to the rule they gave the Saturday night airwaves, radio waves, to a for-profit cartel controlled by a handful, literally, of industrial barons, essentially, and rich men who were running the National Hockey League. And the reason I think, and, and the rest is, as it were, history. That's one of the reasons the National Hockey League was able to convince Canadians that hockey was the quintessential Canadian sport is because they were able to, over the airwaves, um, broadcast games from Montreal, and in particular, as of the 1930s, that building that's just a block or two away from here, Maple Leaf Gardens, two teams in Canada broadcast to the rest of Canada and convinced Canadians that National Hockey League was hockey and that hockey was the quintessential Canadian sport. There's a historian at University of Toronto who has studied this very carefully, Uh, Bruce Kidd, he's now the principal of um, U of T Scarborough campus where they have the beautiful pools we were talking about earlier and and so forth. Um, He calls this decision in his history of the National Hockey League CBC relationship as an abrogation of the public trust and a colossal failure of the imagination. And what he means by both of those is that there was all kinds of sports traditions that were going on in the 1920s and 30s um, uh, in between the wars. The National Hockey League came out as being a dominant force and it did in part, to a great extent because of this relationship that was developed and the exception that was made to give the Saturday Night Airwaves to, to the profiteers of the National Hockey League and that was their main goal was to make profit for themselves and to control the sport, control the labor which they eventually did, the players, Uh, and so on and so forth, it was all a big marketing scheme basically and it was incredibly successful. The point however is, the more general point that I want to make is that sports are something that are constructed. They're constructed by sometimes powerful agents, sometimes by coincidence of events historically, and by a number of, a number of other things. But if you can cons- you construct sport in one way, uh, thinking about things more positively, you can construct it in any one of a number of ways. So you can, uh, you can, you can challenge power in sport and so forth and construct it differently. That's what Alice Milliat tried to do in the 1920s and 30s with the women's games, which ultimately was a movement that fell apart unfortunately. Um, but um, you know we can construct sport. Uh, uh, people have agency, obviously, and power can be challenged and has been before. So that just point that I wanted to pick up off.
3: Um, thanks for that, Ian.: When Cassandra was talking, I was thinking a lot about the Raptors We the North campaign. We, we talked a lot about that uh, in my social sport classes and actually in uh, some of my media research methods classes too uh, over the last year. And what I find interesting about that campaign was that it was a response to, you know, making the Americans know who we are, right? First thing. Apparently no NBA players want to come to Toronto, so we had to create some story about ourselves up here. And the second thing is we had to tell some story to the rest of Canadians about, you know, this just isn't a Toronto team. This is Canada's team. So the very interesting thing about bodies and what I think of in terms of intersectionality when it comes to identities in sport and also play is that when you look at those We the North commercials, think about the most dominant images you see of basketball. You see young, racialized men, mostly. There are a couple of white guys thrown in there. I think one of the commercials features two women, but they're not even playing ball when the camera pans to them. They're holding a ball. There aren't any images of the plethora, the variety of types of ways that ball is played. We get this gritty sort of image of the pickup basketball game in some dark corner recess of the city. When we look at that commercial, though, what's so interesting about it is that it cuts off what I think, and I don't know what everybody else here thinks, it cuts off actually what ball is culturally, in my experiences, in working in different communities in Toronto. So everyone plays ball we're going to go play pick up ball and your grandma's going to come. And no, your grandma can't dribble, but she's just going to stand there. We're going to throw her the ball and she's going to participate kind of thing. So in some ways, and a lot of my students sort of spoke about this when we were sort of analyzing commercial, We the North is just as bad as NHL hockey owning Saturday night on the CBC. It doesn't really tell the story of a lot of people. It tells the story of a small sort of Uh, how should we say, uh, a small group of people in a very corporatized way, we don't see pictures of our phenomenal wheelchair basketball athletes in that commercial. If we, the North, is all about telling people that, yes, we play basketball up here, um, then commercials like that obviously don't tell the full story. I'm also thinking about these sort of tales and narratives in a very intersectional way. So looking at race, uh, looking at class, looking at gender as well. And I know, Cassandra, you brought up the point about the ways in which Venus and Serena Williams as racialized female athletes are represented in the media. And that is sort of a huge sort of problematic uh, case study in and of itself. I think one of the latest stories about them is that a tennis federation official in Russia was on a uh, nighttime uh, talk show and was talking to the host and pretty much said that uh, Serena Williams was a man and that the Russian tennis players, female tennis players, shouldn't have to play against her. And that's just sort of a slew of many things that have been happening with regards to what happened when Venus and Serena Williams stepped onto the scene and changed the look of women's tennis. And when I say they changed the look, they just didn't change it in terms of its color. They changed it in terms of the way that people trained for that game. They changed the look in terms of the way they looked in playing that game. And they also changed the game in terms of the fans that they attracted to the game as well. So all of this dismantling is happening you know, in WTA tennis. And it's almost as if, which is not surprising, the powers that be in that organization, they don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to respond to it. They actually don't see that what Venus and Serena Williams have brought to tennis is this phenomenal thing that opens up the game and also brings different types of people and attracts them to not just tennis, but seeing racialized women in very powerful roles and being very successful on the world stage. And I think the last thing, and I'm sure we're going to get into this, um, and this goes back to bo- things that both Ian and Cassandra were, were talking about. When I think about gender verification testing and we look at you know uh, the female athletes who are the ones who are subjected to this, you know when you look at somebody like Castor Semenya, And we probably know who Castor Semenya is, South African uh, runner who was first stripped of the gold medal that she won in the World Championships a few years ago, and then they gave it back to her. Castor Semenya was only under suspicion after her fellow female competitors said, she doesn't look like a woman. And we think that she's a man, and it's not fair that she ran this race with us. So, I think about Castor Semenya, and I also think about Duti Chand from India, who's also another runner. And I think Bruce Kidd is actually consulting on her case right now. They brought it to, to yeah, court. Duti right.
0: Chand is a runner who uh, had, has failed with, maybe we'll get into this later, but it's known as the hyperandrogenism test. Mm-hmm. And But she has now taken um, the she's taken the case to the court of arbitration for sport. I'm not sure who it's against specifically, it doesn't really matter.
3: Yeah, so So when I think about those athletes, I also think too about the racial sort of story that's going on here too. So, So not only do we have obviously these very powerful agencies that are headed up by usually white males, to the exclusion of people who are different. So they're not a lot of women, not are not a lot of athletes who identify as Paralympians um, with different types of accessibility issues. But we see an in, sort of like an imposition of a sort of white Eurocentric ideal telling us and telling these athletes like Shand and Castor Semenya, hey, your bodies don't look like women's bodies, right? And I think that we can't forget too about the intersections here of class, of gender, of race, uh, of different types or envisioning different types of ways of being, in that it's ridiculous to sort of say that these women should not compete as women because of somebody's very sort of, how should we say, narrow, uh, stereotypical definition of what a female should look like and how she should
4: perform. What uh, what, it, what you raise for me, Nicole, is also it's, it's reading Castor Zamania in relation to Oscar Pistorius, right? And they're both like she's also from South Africa, right? So the ways in which this forms, and for me, it's always intertwined in terms of how these bodies become symbols for the nation, right? So how they fall in and they fall out of out of love of the nation. So Oscar Pistorius, he, even though he's fallen out, he's still in. Um, he's still seen as a symbol, right? Especially because he represents Afrikanas, you know, he, he represents a particular kind of, um, you know, a way of understanding South Africa, right? And also because he's known as a blade runner, right? So the ways in which he brought in, um, you know, as a person with a disability, he brought in uh, was really, he really kind of, he had this story of the narrative of, like he overcame, right, his, uh, his disability, right? Because he was, uh, because, he looks normal, right? He, he he's, he's very good-looking. So all of those those aesthetics we can't we can't get away from the fact that aesthetics also lends itself to how we understand a person to be, right? So the ways mm-hmm. and <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Right. So so um, so so um, so I'm thinking back again to my to Fallon Fox as my example. So if Fallon Fallon um, fails in the eyes of the um, of the uh, of uh, the UCF that that because Fallon doesn't look. Feminine enough, even though as, a, as a, a, a mixed martial artist, you're supposed to have a particular kind of strength, right? So I think that those narratives are really, really strong, and I'm not even sure also, like, um, like uh, how um so one of the so i would say that one of Fallon's competitors or, or or you know fellow colleagues is a very pretty um petite blonde woman who transitions back and forth in terms of how she can how she can morph herself into um you know a pretty high heel wearing wom- woman you <laughs> say put in quotation marks versus a very strong kind of um you know a defined athlete so i think that Those definitions we need to question around like um, we need to kind of really kind of turn the tables and really kind of upset um, high performance sports in terms of what we 're supposed to look at aesthetically, and I think that i don 't know with the commodification of bodies i don 't know how to sometimes how we're going to continue to to challenge that, right especially when you have those those dominant um, those dominant institutions that are um, that Kind of dictate um, how we're supposed to consume, right? Um, and how, but um, and maybe social media or other ways of, our blogs, maybe a way to counter some of that discourse and really kind of speaking your story. So I'll, I, I would say here with Fallon is that what she's what she's done is that she created. Um, there's a film that's coming out and it's going to be in the Inside Out Festival with um, with her that, that she was going to she was going to tell her story in that film, but she got out it again in, in before that happened, and I think that's really a way to kind of plug the, sh- the, the, uh, the film, as a way to kind of see, a, like hear her story, and to really kind of form another re- opinion about how, like some of the challenges in which um, women face in terms of in, in being a part of being, um, um, I guess, uh, being, being seen or being in sport and being visible um, in ways that they may not want to be, right, and where they're not ready, when you, your story is forced before you have the chance to tell your story, or if you want to tell your story at all, right? So I think that's kind of important to kind of tie those things together.
2: We've gotten to sort of touch on and introduce a lot of different sort of aspects of sport, sport history, identity and bodies, corporatization of sport. Um, does anybody have one question that they are just been holding on for the last hour and 10 minutes that they just can't wait to ask? I'm going to walk over um, because we do audio record these for our podcast. We want to make sure we get the question as well as the answer.
5: Uh, It's regarding uh, trans inclusion and uh, with cases of trans athletes uh, popping up more often now. uh, Does the IOC and other major uh, sports leagues have any policies or guidelines in place to to handle uh, such cases?
0: sex testing policy, because they don't trust them and they suspect, suspect them, essentially. Um, there are, maybe you can pipe in here, I, I don't think there's very many organizations that have created policies yet, uh, but they're emerging. Uh, the CCES, sorry, is, is, is formulating one, right. The Canadian Centre for Ethics and Sport uh, is formulating a policy right now, which is really great to see. The Canadian uh, College Athletics Association apparently has one that's fairly progressive. The Canadian Interuniversity Sport is creating one, I believe. Um, and, and by the way, the CCES, the Canadian Centre for Ethics and Sport is important because it oversees issues of ethics and values and so forth in sport in general. It was created originally out of the Dublin inquiry after the Ben Johnson positive test, uh, the Charles Dublin inquiry into, into drug use. Uh, it was created basically as a doping organization but they wanted to broaden their perspective and so in the mid-1990s they uh, changed their name to from the Canadian Anti-Doping Organization Cato to CCES, Canadian Centre for Ethics and Sport, and they have policies around sport um, in a number of senses, uh, you know, ch- children's sport and, and, and so on and so forth. So it'll be interesting to see what they come up with because they're at arm's length uh, to the government itself. Uh, of Canada. The International Olympic Committee, uh, sort of the 32nd history of the way in which trans athletes, generally speaking, or athletes who have challenged traditional binary gender categorization, um, women who are suspected of being men or too masculine and what have you, Uh, the International Olympic Committee and other organizations have done forms of testing of them going all the way back to the 1920s and 30s. They formalized the testing in the 1960s. Um, 1967 at their meetings they created sex testing. At the same time they created anti-doping testing as well. 1968 they did testing for the first time. It was uh, chromosome testing. They uh, did forms of chromosome testing, XXXY, uh, all the way to the end of the 20th century because of criticisms from uh, some athletes and some athletes who challenged the testing um, and also from scientists themselves that said that testing is is is, um, is BS, actually. Uh, they, they stopped doing it at the end of the 20th century. They replaced it, however, in 2003 with what Uh, was and I still think is an effect uh, policy called the Stockholm Consensus which said that transitioned athletes male to female or female to male uh, can compete in their transition status as long as they've gone through complete surgery two years of hormones uh, therapy Um, and I think that's it I think that's the the main rationale and so then they can compete in their transitioned, uh, transitioned sex Uh, In 2011, especially in the aftermath of Castor Semenia, they created what's known as the hyperandrogenism uh, rule, which essentially says that uh, androgen levels or hormone levels above a certain level, uh, women who have levels above those level, and it's defined by a level that's sort of the the baseline for men, um, at least theoretically. Women who uh, um, are tested for androgen levels at that level um, are not permitted to compete. And uh, Duty Chand, who we mentioned earlier, the Indian runner, uh, is taking the decision against her uh, based on the hyperandrogenism rule to the court of arbitration for sport. So that's gonna be really important because she's challenging it in, in, in court. Um, and also, at the same time, there's a very important court case in Canada regarding a woman whose name I will not mention because I don't know if it's filed yet or not. It either has just been or it's going to be. There's a female cyclist in Canada who is going to take uh, Canadian cycling to court based on human rights violations. And her case is gonna be based on, um, is going to be based on the idea that she's a transition male to female cyclist who has to take hormones, a lot of hormones, actually, and um, it puts her at the level that does not allow her to compete. So she's essentially taking Canadian cycling to court based on uh, the fact that the the rule uh, is unhealthy for her, essentially, and there's long-term health consequences. And what she's actually doing, I suspect, is she doesn't wanna just go after Canadian cycling. Canadian cycling has to follow the rules of the UCI, the International Cycling Body, who in turn follow the rules of the International Olympic Committee. She's going after the big boys, basically, through this. Because once, if she wins, then it's going to the the case will essentially say that Canadian cycling rules are contrary to human rights Canadian cycling is going to say to the international cycling body well look we just can't do this anymore and your policy is based on the IOC so indirectly the IOC is hopefully anyways being taken to court based on human rights violations it could spell the end for hyperandrogenism and sex testing as we know it, uh, but, and I hope it does. I think it's a stupid policy. It always has been, um, and I hope that's the end of it. But having said that, um, the International Olympic Committee is a pretty stubborn body, so uh, it's been going on a long time now. They've been doing this for 50 years, and they don't seem to want to let it go. Uh, but uh, they're being taken to court over it now, so that m- might be very important, those two cases in particular.
2: I'd also add, there so the CCES is um, coming up with policy recommendations unfortunately the policy recommendations that they make aren't they can't enforce um, they just create policy recommendations and hope that international inter- or national or provincial um, sport governing bodies take those recommendations seriously um, the recommendations that are coming are actually quite um, a step away from the IOC's um, sort of definition or history of sex testing and and the Stockholm consensus um, which is about surgery and it's about taking hormones and it's also about being um, recognized by your home nation um, with the gender marker that you prefer which isn't a reality for many of the nations um, that are competing in international sport. Um, There is the example of the Canadian Intercollegiate Athletic Association has a fairly progressive policy. The Toronto District School Board, at least for school-based gym, class, and sport is, at least for an elementary level, um, is trying to create more inclusive spaces within gym, class, and sport. Um, The Ontario Federation of Secondary School Athletics Association, OFSA, has taken the IOC policy. um, So they're asking high school students to be on hormones and possibly surgery and be medically supervised in order to participate in a high school level sport, which I think is really unfortunate. Um, the Manitoba High School Athletic Association is doing has a much more progressive policy that they um, have drafted and are looking to implement, but they're also waiting for the CCES recommendations to come out before they finalize that. So there are people who have sort of the IOC, terrible, repressive kind of policies that they're just sort of taking up unquestioningly. Um, But there are examples, as this becomes more of a story, um, that people are trying to find more progressive ways to be inclusive, and that's sort of moving away from the medical model, um, because kind of in a nutshell, people want to make sport fair. um, But if you think about sport, it isn't fair, if it was fair, everybody would tie, and You know we're we're not looking to make everybody tie and so you're trying to find this balance of this ideal of fairness which is a total myth um, and then making sure that sport is inclusive so there's definitely changes happening and it's moving more quickly than it has before but there's definitely a lot of um, organizations that just look to the ioc because the ioc is you know the the person the body in charge they put themselves in charge and they're really leading the way so hopefully that does Slowly change, um, but as the hyperangiogenism has shown, it keeps changing, but it's not changing in, in really good ways.
6: Um, this may be a little bit too technical question, but um, so through the uh, Olympic or big sports events, a lot of like violence happens. Like a lot of women are subjected to gender testing, for example, their career has been terminated. Many of them had a lot of like a difficult life afterwards. And then, so you told me that I'm um, now uh, duty, she's taking the, which I don't know that, maybe Indian Athletical Association or something to a court. But so one of my understanding is that like the IOC, for example, it's sitting at the highest of all these organizations and then their rule kind of trickle down to the smaller organizations because they t- try to model after them, the IOC. So you mentioned that this ruling might eventually affect the IOC's policy but so uh, my understanding is that the ioc is a sort of su- supranational organization it's not a democratic organization and, and they are not binded by any sort of law because the law is based on the national nation states rules and as far as i remember when the ski jumping issue right there was a court case in against nov vanok but ioc wasn't taken accountable, right? Because nobody could judge IOC based on whatever the rules around the world. So in this case, do you have any guess? Like, what are the paths that that could affect the uh, policy of IOC? Like, who is actually has the power to really control IOC in this case?
0: Yeah, you're right. Uh, No one does. They're accountable, essentially, to no one. Um, And that's one of the remarkable things about the IOC. It's uh, one of the most powerful political organizations, in a sense, in the world for that reason. Um, and the court of arbitration for sport you're right in some respects the question is too technical I, I don't want to say anything that is that I don't know uh, the answer to uh, But I think the court of arbitration for sport itself was created by the IOC um, it's housed by You know Dick Pound is one of the I, is one of the lawyers for the court of, in the court of arbitration for sport And he's an old IOC guy Canadian um, but uh, you know, they might not be held accountable. The decision may not have any direct effect on a rule like hyperandrogenism. But on the other hand, there, I think there's something to be said for the court of public opinion because these cases are going to, I think, be more well-known in the future. Castor Semenya was so important because it was just so such a well-known case. And I think there's... Um, There's gonna be pressure from a number of directions uh, on the International Olympic Committee, uh, including scientific ones. There's increased voices of scientists who are saying, like these rules don't make any sense, including hyperandrogenism. The case I mentioned before that's going in front of the Ontario Human Rights uh, Courts, um, it's gonna have scientific evidence behind it and scientists behind it, not just the athlete. So, you know, combined uh, voices, as it were, uh, might have some effect even if uh, a single court decision isn't going to directly influence the IOC's, um, um, w- their decision whether to, uh, to just get rid of hyperandrogenism or any kind of sex testing or not, I, I don't know. But, uh, you know, the, the IOC historically, if, if, if history shows us anything, I mean, they make decisions based on their ability to maintain power in the world of sport. And as long as they can do that, and if they find, okay, we're gonna give up on sex testing of any kind, but we can still maintain power, uh, perhaps they'll become gender inclusive bastions of gender inclusivity in the near future. I wouldn't put it beyond them. If that's the going trend, uh, they'll do it as long as they can maintain power. That's the, the one way I think of thinking about the IOC and its decision making. Um, They've got a lot invested in the history of sex testing, but uh, if they find, well, it's not going to affect much uh, in terms of the presentation of sport um, and how it's perceived, then let's just get rid of it. That's my best guess.
2: That sounds like a utopia. If the IOC would only do that, that would be awesome.
5: Okay. So this isn't a very well formulated thought yet, but I just thought maybe we could change the subject a bit to the media understanding of sports. So I'm very involved in the Toronto and international roller derby kind of community. Um, and there's debates when it was up for the the long list for the 2020 Olympics, whether or not it should be something that should be pursued or not. Um, and just based on what you were saying about the, Projection of women's sports or gender and uh, gender inclusive sports and sports that are very inclusive of different orientations and bodies. Do you think this is possible to get a sport like roller derby to a level where it could be televised and respected with what we know about the history of masculinity and the presentation of a sport in that sense?
3: Yeah, roller derby (coughs) is very interesting. I do believe I have a Hammer City Roller Girls t-shirt when I used to live in Hamilton. I think that when it comes to any sport, and in particular roller derby here, we have to think about perhaps what type of value are we putting on the sport? So right now, whenever sport is put on TV, people only wanna see the sport that's got a slick production and that you know has excellent color commentary because we've been so socialized to expect that that's the way that sports should be broadcast and presented to an audience I think what has been working and I lament a little bit because I know that community broadcasting channels are being sort of whittled away and money and funding is taken away for them I can remember about 10, 15 years ago, we would have a community channel that Rogers Yes would own, but they would still cover certain games. So they do that still for high school games, they do it for volleyball, basketball, things like that. So when it comes to sports like roller derby, I see that it has to be an intersection of a few things. Perhaps we cannot expect that the powers that be, so the big networks are going to take it up right away. Because what happens with certain sports, and I think about a sport like sort of those sports that began in the X Games, so all of those snowboarding sports. Those were fringe sports. And then all of a sudden, oh, companies like Red Bull and O'Neill they're like, oh, these young kids are like sporting our clothes and drinking our drinks. Let's get, get in on that, right? So all of a sudden, all of these sport board or the snowboarding sports become really popular. Young people play them. They're a growing, how should we say, market. We can get money off of them. They're kind of wild, crazy, you know, fluid type of things to go and watch. Everyone likes them. They're a lot of fun. So money gets funneled into those particular, uh, that particular sport. And I'd say it's doing quite well now because a lot of those events are included in the Olympics. So getting back to your question of when do we see other sports like your sport getting more play in the mass media, I think that maybe we have to forget about the big networks. And we have to start mobilizing on smaller channels and getting those people who are into more critical aspects of sport to talk about it a lot more. There's a sort of budding interest, many websites. I think about one website. Uh, created by Dave Zirin, who's this critical media, you know, anti sort of uh, looking at racism, looking at uh, sexism in sports mass media. Dave Zirin has a website called The Edge of Sports, where he talks about all these things that the big networks and the mainstream don't want to talk about with regards to sports. So getting back to your question, I think maybe we have to look for alternative ways It will start in certain pockets. It's gonna start with people in the communities going down to those roller derby games, tweeting about it, putting it up on their Facebook. I actually think that a big part of what helps a lot of marginal sports become more popular is it gets taken up in like the schoolyard, right? Or teachers get an opportunity, maybe on that last day of school or something like that to introduce something new, or they get a guest speaker in. And it might not have to do with roller derby, it may just have to do with look at this female athlete who's doing something that we just don't see a lot of. So again, I think when it comes to certain sports that we know we're very passionate about on a grassroots and community level, we have so much work to do with regards to hyping it, making sure people in the community know about it. I think the big players will come, but they're only gonna come when they smell money. So I think it's very important to sort of build a sport that has value, that has meaning, that is structured from within, and that has the identity of the community that participates in it, and obviously invests their time in it. And then all of those other things with regards to broadcasting could come, but we have to think perhaps about what broadcasting means. And I'm with you, it would be great to see this on a large scale, and we should be able to have access to it on a large scale. But the current way in which the corporate powers that control television airwaves are structured, they do such a very good job of keeping all of this stuff out. So one of the ways that we have to do is sort of deconstruct that model and then say, hey, we might start this on the blog system. We might start it on a live stream system. Right now, the CIS, the Canadian Intercollegiate Sport Association, I know at Ryerson, I can watch all the women's basketball games live stream. I don't even have to be there. And I do watch them because it's more accessible. And they kind of know not everyone's going to have the time to go down and watch the game. But this is another way that we can at least try to, how should we say, uh, cultivate a culture around a particular sport
0: you also need an international federation or else the IOC is never going to take it seriously because that's how they make this you have to be being organized internationally so i don't know if roller derby is or not but um, if you're just a up. i don't know if i need to find it or not, but i can talk about. I'll walk over
5: i walked over i i've just always been curious whether or not it's uh, trajectory that a fringe sport wants to follow, given the pseudonyms and the inclusion again, and I guess the flexibility in terms of you, know, you have a pseudonym, you have all this, and if it became more mainstream, I feel like more rules would be imposed. And is that something that would have to be sacrificed, or could you somehow be at that mainstream, accessible level to the public while maintaining that kind of grassroots influence that started it all? I guess that's a rhetorical t- question, but great comment
3: that you make. You know, I think when sporting practices become very institutionalized, usually the people that started it on the ground floor building it have less of a say. Um, So I think, yes, your point there is is one that I think is important to, to think about. And again, it kind of goes back to what I was saying is, what is our vision for maybe making certain marginal sports more mainstream? do we necessarily wanna follow a model that's already there or is it just about giving people the ability to access it? So when I think about sports like roller derby, for instance, I think that it's very well supported and has allies maybe in those sort of like fringe publications, right? So maybe Now Magazine's gonna write a story about it. Maybe you have some uh, feminine identified zines also writing about it. And they're not into sports at all, but they totally feel the whole marginality thing and community thing about propping each other up and getting each other's messages out there and things like that. So in some ways, I always think that maybe we've exhausted the sports fan group or pool Let's be more creative. Let's go out to people who would never sit down and watch hockey on a Saturday night, not like that's a bad thing, or never gonna go watch a Raptors game. Let's actually go talk to folks who maybe we just see playing in the park or people in your yoga class, right? And ask them about, hey, would you maybe wanna check this out kind of thing? So I think we have to sort of go beyond what's already there because we keep on getting messages that they don't want us there right so at some point when we start to cultivate our own things and we know that what we know what it means to us then we can start sort of tinkering and really dismantling things and maybe even calling people who were skeptics back on side
2: hopefully that answered your rhetorical question a little bit one of the cool things about roller derby i'm going to walk over here because there's a question here and a question over there and this will be quick so i only have about 10 minutes left um, roller derby some of the leagues have some really great trans inclusion policies um, which may or may not um, be able to travel with them if they go into sort of a more mainstream sporting environment um, I don't no, for sure if they do have an international federation but another example of a sport a full contact co-ed sport um, if you have heard of harry potter there was a sport called quidditch that came out of that that the muggles now play across the world there's actually an international quidditch association which has one of the most inclusive policies around gender that I've ever seen in any sport, let alone an internationally recognized full contact co-ed sport um, where they have this minimum rule, I think it's two minimum, and uh, two minimum or four minimum, um, and it's called title nine and three quarters. (laughs) Uh, And it just means that a certain number of people on your team have to identify as the same gender and everybody else can identify any which way they please. So I think I often bring that up as a really cool example of what's possible in a sport, and we're talking about contact, co-ed, internationally um, sort of governed, as much as you're anyone's governing Quidditch. Um, But again, if that was taken up into sort of mainstream sport um, or the Olympics, they wouldn't be able, I don't think, to carry those same um, values with them, at least not the way that the IOC operates now. So I think there is value in being on the fringe as well.
7: Jeez, I kind of like that. Can we start a league? (laughs) What was it? Seven and three quarters? So I was really intrigued with some of the conversation, and I may have missed some of it. But the two streams I was thinking of as the manufacturing of the athlete, the manufacturing of consent around the sport. It's a capitalist sport, the Rogers Center, the Bell, the BMO Center. And the only way to be successful at it is to be a particular image. And for someone to be successful in professional sport, they have to sort of comply with that image of the, um, the branding to be successful, to be the corporate advertising. So it almost says that well, maybe we should take back this thing at, at a recreational and a community level and be less focused on being the elite and perhaps more focused on health and recreation and social inclusion. And maybe creating leagues like that sounded like a fabulous <laughs> starting point the second piece is, is around Fallon Fox. I'm going to see the movie. I'm looking forward to it. Casper, I, the South African runner. just So if I run, in, I'm a amateur runner, I come 100, 380 something. Nobody notices. I come first, everybody notices. And so it's about success, right? So where these, um, and I'm talking about people who are not how do I say this? <laughs> um, not historically measured by sex segregation determinants. Um, I'm, pr- I'm going to let you f- use the language. But just that idea that um, um, around the testing and the segregation of sex and how, just, how incredibly sexist um, those policies around testing and sex segregation are, and so I'll let, let the wise people comment on that because I'm struggling with language.
2: We're all wise people. <laughs> I don't know if anyone has a couple of quick points while I walk over here to the next question.
0: Well, I'll, I'll just say something very, very briefly. It goes to your first point, and I agree. Uh, um, and Like I mentioned before, uh, it, it, you know, uh, elite sport, Professional or so-called amateur, which is not really, but in any case, wh- however you want to define it, um, has very little influence on everyday sport. Um, this was shown uh, at the Sochi Games when, um, you know, there was a, a, a sociologist from again from Toronto named Peter Donnelly who was interviewed on Globe and Mail. Um, was asked, you know, well, we've just gone through the Sochi Games. Canada has done very well. What is the impact that that's going to have? on uh, sport participation and his answer was very, very little because it never does and that's been shown. Um, And and Canada in the last 20, 25 years our medal count has gone up, our participation rates have gone down. That doesn't mean the one is causing the other but they are related in some ways and uh, you know if we forgot about elite sport. um, Children and others are much more influenced by those that are around them, their peers, their family, what they see in their immediate environment, much more than what they see on television. And so, you know, why we need to keep looking to the elite sport for the models for sport, I, I don't know, because the everyday level has a much greater impact on kids and others. I think
3: maybe one of the things I could mention about your point with performance and you know the difference between coming in 108th as opposed to coming in first is that I know I checked this uh, last year if you go on to the IOC website you can see all of the times that athletes have run in, certain, in all of the events and when you look at Castor Semenya's time for the women's 400 meter race Castor Semenya is not at the top of that list. I think her time is maybe in the top 12 or something like that. She's number 10 or number eight or whatever like that. And there are many more athletes ahead of her. So getting back to this idea of fairness, um, you know, that's a very sort of interesting thing and performance and elite performances and you know the basis of Castor Semenya becoming under suspicion was that well no woman can run that fast. Well actually they have and they've run faster than Castor Semenya historically.
2: Yeah and if it's I mean an area of interest we have the example of Michelle Demoresque who's the downhill cyclist the first out trans-identified national athlete ever as far as we know Um, who raced for Canada and had a lot of protest um, because people thought that that was unfair, but she raced at the same time um, as um, the, I forget her name, Um, but there was a French cyclist who completely dominated. She won every World Cup uh, the whole time. She won the first uh, BMX gold medal when that was introduced. Uh, and Caroline chazal that's her name. She won the first BMX gold medal when that was introduced in the Olympics, and so nobody ever questioned her. She beat Michelle Demarest, candidly every time they raced, um, but it just sort of is like this idea that there's this advantage that, you know, when you compare to other people, there's often a lot of overlap um, in, in women's performance and in men's performance
3: that we don't talk about. And I, I would just add one last thing to that, too. When you look at the basis of sports, you know, sports do that construction of things as being normal so much. That's what we always look to sports too. But we also look at sports to see sort of like the freaks, right? The people who can run really, really fast. And I remember, and I challenge anybody to see if they can find it online, um, there is a documentary produced by the BBC in conjunction with another small film company in the UK on Castor Semenya, and it's called Too Fast to Be a Woman, the Castor Semenya. I saw it a few times and was able to sort of show it in class and engage, you know, discuss issues with my students. In that documentary, they talk to many scientists who actually say Castor Semenya is actually not the issue here. When we look at someone like Usain Bolt, Usain Bolt in terms of just his physique and the way he's built and put together, he's actually more of a quote unquote genetic freak than Castor Semenya is. He actually is the one blowing away his competition, but we're not looking at Usain Bolt and trying to figure out, gee, you know, what's going on here with you know the ways in which his body is structured. Although I have read a few articles that uh, put Usain Bolt under different kinds of uh, sort of suspicion. So yes, it's this sort of sexist, obviously racist, arbitrary system um, that sex gender verification has essentially become, and it's very reactionary too. Um, yeah.
2: Thank you, so it's 7.59, we have one minute for the last question, and then I'll wrap it up.
8: Thanks. Uh, My academic background comes from the arts as opposed to sports, which uh, you all on the panel have that background from. Um, And in my understanding or my development of understanding um, of what Canadian culture is and where it started from is this idea of northerness, Uh, especially as we see it in literature and drama and cinema, uh, and especially in the early forms of those times, uh, Canadian artistic talents were rooted in and legitimized by portraying the idea of north and i found the we the north campaign as persuasive language as it includes um, to be quite captivating and interesting for those uh, same merits and i'm wondering if that statement and what it's trying to do is maybe accept and include and saying we're together in this uh, from that background but i think at, at the same time it might also alienate at, um, by saying, if you don't look like us, or don't have this kind of body that we envision other people who are on the raptors have, uh, it means you might not be have that same kind of access or privilege. Um, so just a comment maybe from the, the group here on the We the North statement and whether you think it is permissive or if it alienates.
3: I think it does both. I think you're going to look at that commercial based on your subjectivity, where you come from, where you grew up, what your sport experiences are, if you like NBA basketball or not, if you know someone, son, daughter, partner who participates. Um, So that's on. You know, we always sort of come to these ways that we're going to read the media messages with the tools that we have and have cultivated along the way. I think maybe my answer is sort of, I could say two things. So, we the North works to get people excited about the Raptors and that's it. We the North doesn't work to get people thinking critically about what basketball actually is in our country and how it tells us stories or it can tell us stories about class, about exclusion how we can tell us stories about race, about gender. Um, you know, So I think in so many ways, like every other message we can be exposed to or have access to, it works on so many different levels. And don't get me wrong, I love basketball. And I feel that whenever I see those We the North commercials, I have so much ambivalence. But I have, I ha- I have to be more critical of it than embracing it. So I think it works in both ways. You're gonna take of it uh, where you are, where you've been, where you think you're going. Uh, But I think for the most part, the Raptors and their advertising agency may have lost a little bit of an opportunity to actually make that we the North statement more powerful and more inclusive because they could have put a whole bunch of other athletes that they forgot to include in there. I mean, there weren't even pictures of women who play on the women's national team in those commercials. And the women's national team's doing a lot better than the men's national team in basketball. They've improved so much, uh, you know, under Lisa Tomitis, but they weren't in there. There weren't pictures of little girls, boys just hanging out, touching the basketball, throwing it around, things like that you know, I think they lost an opportunity there. And if they really wanted to make it Toronto-centric, because a lot of it was so urban and Toronto-centric, why not go into a lot of the leagues that we know exist that have actually done a good job, I think, of like Rainbow Hoops basketball. And, you know, man, I never played in that league, but when I go and watch my friends play and to see the level of enjoyment and engagement that they have with just being active and being active in a space where their bodies are accepted, I think that's basketball. So that's my answer. It works on two levels and you can take a little sliver of it or you can sort of dig deeper and reject a lot of the messages in in that uh, commercial.
1: Thanks for listening to the Pride House TO podcast. There is going to be one more cafe session uh, that will take place during the Pan Am Games. The subject is to be decided then. The organizers are going to wait to see what issues arise during the Pan Am Games and the panel will be organized along those subject lines, which is a really great idea and I look forward to attending it. The Pride House Toronto project is funded by the Ontario Trillium Foundation, the City of Toronto and the Government of Ontario, with support of our lead partner CIBC. The 519 is proud to serve as the trustee of Pride House TO providing organizational staff and financial resources to ensure the success of the project. The Pride House TO team as always extends its thanks to everyone who contributes to ensuring there is a place for all in sport.
7: Pride House Toronto, um lugar para todos no sport. Para saber mais, visite-nos na internet pelo Facebook ou pelo Twitter, pridehousetoronto.ca.